The title of my new series is Acts Reenacted. We're going to be studying together my favourite portion of scripture ever, the book of Acts. And uh, for those unaware, the book of Acts is written by a doctor and historian named Luke. He's known as the writer of the Gospel of Luke, and he's also got this book as well. They're both addressed to a fellow named Theophilus. We don't know really who that guy is, not entirely sure, but one of the more plausible theories out there is that that Luke is writing something here for the benefit of explaining Christianity to a Roman authority, trying to explain both the work of Christ but also the activity of the church so that perhaps the Romans are trying to make sense of this. He's not alone. In, the, in centuries to come, people like Justin Martyr and people like that were also known to write what we call apologetics, uh, documents to explain the way Christians operate. We know in, this, in, the, in going into the second century the the church is actually accused of things like uh, cannibalism because they apparently drank blood. Uh, they were accused of incest because they regarded everybody as brothers and sisters. There were was, there was serious charges being stayed and they were also considered atheists because they wouldn't worship the emperor uh, cult either. So uh, because they didn't have statues, because they didn't have reference points of buildings, there was a lot of accusation made about the church, a lot of misunderstanding. And so it was not uncommon for people to write and actually explain Christianity. Luke is one of the first of those, uh, and Acts is one of those. Acts describes the next chapter in the life of the followers of Jesus Christ. It shows us intimately the workings of the early church in a time before denominations, in a time before reformations, in a time before Catholic-Protestant fights, a simpler time. Before Western megachurch models, before it became a legal entity. In this setting, we see a healthy church DNA and a community that knew nothing else but to get on with the job of doing the Great Commission and living out the Great Commandment. It's this simplicity of church life that I believe the Lord is perhaps calling the Western church to re-explore again. I think we've made things awfully complicated at times. We've made things very corporation-like and we've, made, we've done a lot of things that somehow, sometimes, cause us to you know, not translate Jesus exactly the way it really should be. But if we can capture and reenact the book of Acts, if we can capture the DNA of the first century Messianic community, then we can make significant inroads into our community. It's a model that even after 2,000 years still works. And uh, I believe we can see God's kingdom come in a profound way if we can capture some of this. So with all that said, Acts chapter 1, verse 1 to 11, let's get started there and uh, get right into it. Verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, obviously his gospel he's referring to there, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, 
But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is Jesus after Easter. We are one week removed from Easter. Jesus is very much alive and for 40 days making clear proof of his physical, bodily, resurrected state. He's speaking face to face with them. He's eating with them. He's teaching them. We know from the Gospels that at this time of teaching included passages like the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And even in John 20, you see Jesus even initiating the Christians into the faith that you and I even know. I'll go into that in a few weeks' time. But now we have today's passage and the time has come where Jesus is to be taken into heaven. And it's at this point that he gives some final instructions to the disciples. This is for them. This is for the community that they would be leading and for the community it would become. I've summed them up in two lines so that we can really capture this in a really, um, you know, in some basic themes. The first one is this. To remain faithful while God's timetable plays out. Remain faithful while God's timetable plays out. I see this in this passage. The Jews believed their Messiah would come and restore the kingdom of Israel to its proper owners, the Jews. They envisaged the the restoration of a human kingdom based in Jerusalem where their God-placed Messiah would reign over the earth. Unfortunately, Jesus showed no desire to reign on earth in his earthly ministry. There were times where they actually tried to make him king, particularly after he fed the 5,000, because all the rabbis believed that the Messiah would come bearing manna from heaven like in the days of old. So when he turned... 5,000, you know, some loaves of bread into enough to feed 5,000 people. They just said, that's it. Let's make him king. But Jesus resisted that every time. And the leading Jews surmised that he wasn't the Messiah that they anticipated. As we read today, the disciples still haven't given up on this idea yet. They're getting itchy feet. It's like, now that you're risen... When does this kingdom thing kick off? They've been hanging with Jesus, a resurrected Jesus for 40 years, 40 days. 40 years. 40 days. Come on, Jesus. It's clear that the Jews can't do anything to you. Death, grave, no match. The Romans tried to put you to death and look who you are. Come on, when are we doing this? 
When is your kingdom coming? When do we get to action? So instead of setting a time and rallying his troops for the earthly takeover they were hoping for, he instead prepares them for his departure. Jesus did have a throne to occupy. He did have a kingdom to build. Unfortunately, no one is going to see it fully until God's heavenly timetable is complete. In the meantime, the era that we know as the church age was established. It was not the lifetime of the disciples, not the first century. It was an unspecified time from Jesus' ascension to Jesus' return. And that hasn't happened yet. The section of God's timeline that the apostles occupied is in fact the same section of God's timeline that you and I are operating in. It is the church age. So every believer now lives under that sacred instruction. We are called to remain faithful as his body of believers. Faithful to the message of the gospel. Faithful to the great commission. Faithful to the great commandment. Love one another. Faithful to the teaching of Jesus. Faithful to be active and attentive until God's timetable is done. The other instruction is this. To be witnesses to the world. Jerusalem, Judea, that's just the neighbouring neighbourhood. Samaria, the outer parts. The Greek word for witness is martyrs. It's also the root word that we use when we use the term martyr. It translates as one who can present as fact or affirm with confidence the things they have seen, heard or know. In John 1.7, John the Baptist presented himself as a witness bearing testimony, a martyr of the coming light of the world. In Acts 22, Stephen was spoken of as a faithful witness, a martyr who defended his faith even to death. In these verses, we see examples of a living witness and a dying witness. Jesus is saying, although we have lives to live, and we do, don't we? We've got a lot of life to live. We've got families, we've got work, payments, mortgages, all these different things that, that, that create our life and, and that fill our life and, and, and do so very well. And they're very noble things. You know, we, we have great families and all those sorts of things. They're awesome things. But we also understand that we have a priority as believers of being a witness to him as well. That we are to be someone who willingly and confidently affirms the things we know concerning Jesus. We are to be happy, living witnesses. And if I'm living, I'm happy. But we're also to be dying witnesses too. Jesus calls it dying to ourself. The mindset where we are willing for our lives to be interrupted for the cause of Christ. Whether it results in life or death, our lives are to be faithful witnesses for Christ. 29 years ago, a fellow named Steve allowed his life to be interrupted. He was doing business. 
doing his daily grind, doing what he does, stepping into a random elevator. And the spirit interrupts his life and goes, talk to that guy. That guy was me. That man's life was interrupted. That was a martyr, a martyr moment, a witness moment. And here I am. And if we know Jesus here today, we are here because someone's life was interrupted for you. So out of this passage, it's simple. Two simple tasks that we can sum this passage up in. Remain faithful, be a witness. Acts 1.8 is the centerpiece of the rest of the book. I'll get to the power bit in a minute. In fact, that's what I'm doing now. Even though these disciples had rather simple sounding instructions, Jesus knew that these guys were going to need a whole lot of help doing it. As simple as they sound, sometimes we're not so good at those things. Patience and faithfulness are not always strong human traits, right? We've learnt that. I've, I've, you, know, you know, me and my default setting is not always like that. Being a witness to the degree, the degree Jesus was saying here was going to take a courage beyond human ability. So how would the church hold on to this? How would they keep the instructions? How would they remain faithful? How would they be witnesses? What would kickstart that? The answer to that is anticipated in chapter 1, where the disciples are told to get ready for it. It's described in chapter 2. Let's go over to chapter 2 and read these first few verses. When the day of the Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated them and came, separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are, giving, who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in our native language? We hear Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. To be the faithful, witnessing church that we're called to be, we actually do need to look closely at Pentecost. Now, initially when I say that, some of us might be getting a bit of a grip in our stomach and going, I've seen that done. I'm not sure if I like where that goes. Let's remember something here. At chapter 2, not even they have a theology of the Holy Spirit yet. They're still on a steeper learning curve as we are right now. All right, They've just had the Holy Spirit invade their life in a powerful way. And we actually, it's a very unique phenomena that we're reading about here 
But as we read this, we actually see some things that we can go, you know what? This still is for us. Let me take you through it. Pentecost was the second of three major feasts in the Jewish calendar. It was celebrated 50 days after Passover. So if you do a timeline right now, how long has Jesus been ascended? So he was put to death when? Around Passover? In the grave three days? Resurrected for how long? 40 days. So we're about a week. About a week removed. Seven days. When he said not a few day, in a few days hence, Jesus meant it. But 50 days after, after Passover. In the first century, it was used to mark a couple of significant things. The beginning of harvest season was the first of these, which is described in Deuteronomy. This feast took time to recognize God as having a hand in the harvest. You need to understand something. The pagan gods around them did all sorts of debauched things to try and get their God to come to the party for their harvest. There was there were um, moral, immoral acts. There was sometimes really, really dastardly things done to, in the, to appease an angry God. These guys had a feast and remembered a good God. In the years leading up to Christ's arrival, the Jewish leaders were began calling their nation back to a level of holiness again. That's where the Pharisee movement came about. That was their motivation. It went a bit wrong, but that was their heart. Bring the people back to a line where they can be ready for a Messiah. In that, they took uh, Pentecost a notch further and they calculated the writing of the Ten Commandments and all the associated laws that God gave Moses to have been given 50 days after the first Passover in Egypt. So you have a holiday season here, marking harvest on one hand and a whole new level of spiritual living on the other. With Jewish pilgrims from all over the world converging on Jerusalem to reverently observe those things. The atmosphere here is an amplified version of what Easter does in us. You know how all of a sudden there's a new awareness and, you know, and we, we suddenly get back and consider Jesus a bit more? Multiply that by 15 million times, you get Jerusalem. There's a greater sense of seeking and spiritual inquiry going on. There's an openness to God in a really heightened state. And it's in that setting that the Lord does something truly special in the city. But before it drops on the whole city, it starts with a group of 120 people in a room meeting to pray. You see, while there was a whole city getting their religion on, there was a group of disciples who were meeting with a sense of purpose and unity that was actually quite unlike the thousands of pilgrims who were walking all around them. How do we know this? Because the Gospels tell us a sad story of worship that was going on in Jerusalem at that time. It was one where they were merely going through the motions. How many know that's not the way we're supposed to live life? I don't want to do faith where I just go through the motions, wake up and just be a machine. It's got to be something more than that, right? Luke tells us there is a oneness about the disciples. And God could use that to make a statement to the whole. 
The original language tells us that Luke was being very deliberate about describing the sense of oneness that here. The ancient Greek philosophers understood the human mind to operate in three different tangents. You could describe mind and translate the word mind a number of different ways. So when, he said, when we read they're in one mind, that could mean a number of things. To Luke it meant a very distinct thing. He had the option to write it down as they were all on an emotional journey together. They felt an emotional connection. Like a big group hug. Everyone just singing Kumbaya. But Luke goes, no, 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 there's something deeper than that going on. He could have written that it was an intellectual connection, one mind, a meeting of minds, that they had come to the same intellectual page. They're in perfect agreement like that. 2,000 years of church history tells us that's not quite the case, right? Read a few chapters of Acts, you find out that's not quite the case. It had merit, but something was not adding up here. The third option was the best one. And it's actually one that we can replicate more readily than the first two. The oneness that Luke is describing here. We might not all be a group-hugging group of people. We might not be in intellectual agreement. But we can still have this oneness. The oneness he described was a singleness of cause, drive or passion. We understand why we are here. We have come together with one agenda and it's not our own. We have a cause. We have a reason we're meeting. It's not about what my thinking says. It's not about how I feel. It's about understanding that Jesus put us here. And we have something to accomplish for him. It's a single-minded deliberate people fueled by the same fire in their hearts. They knew exactly why they were gathered and this drove their prayerful resolve to remain in the upper room until the Spirit fell. Psalm 133 tells us the Lord bestows blessing on the unity of God's people. 2 Chronicles 7 tells us when times of dryness and drought come, i.e. when there's no harvest, that humility, repentance and prayer would bring healing to the land again. So when you have a sacred day to call on the Lord of the harvest, a sacred day to mark spiritual awakening, and when you meet together on that in the presence of God in a more than going through the motions sort of way, when you come together for one single cause, one agenda, you have the perfect environment for the Holy Spirit to make His presence felt. He does that in a pretty awesome way too. Hebrews 12, we're told that the law that Moses was given down at Mount Sinai there came with wind, fire and heavenly voices. At Pentecost we see that as well. A rushing, shaking wind rattles through their meeting place and a flame appears over their heads. In Luke 3.16, John the Baptist taught that Jesus would baptise his followers with the Holy Spirit and with fire. We understand spirit, pneuma, has often been translated as wind. 
It's breath. It's movement of air. Wind through the Bible is synonymous with power. Fire throughout the Bible is associated with purity and boldness. When the Holy Spirit comes, look what rests on us. But like Sinai, Pentecost had a voice too. A new one. One that brought an entire city to a standstill. This was a voice that caused people to take notice because of how amazing it sounded. For it was declaring the wonders of God, but also coming from the most unlikely of places, an uneducated Galilean mouth. I don't say that rudely. It's actually true. The Galileans were reputed to be the redneck group of the nation with really bad diction, could barely speak their own language right. But here they are able to articulate the things they previously didn't even understand. A week prior, they still haven't got it. And now they're articulating it in the languages of the world. If we cite... Acts 2 was the reason we speak in tongues in our prayer language in the closet. I think we're probably off the beaten track a little bit. I believe this is a very unique phenomena where God was actually, it's not about what spiritual gift they had, it's actually the presence of the Spirit giving the people who could not articulate God before a specific voice where they could again. It's creating fire, wind and a voice. And when we start begin to interact with the Holy Spirit, that's what we're looking for first and foremost. Fire, wind, voice. If we can just look at that first, you can look at other gifts down the track. This was a very specific moment in, in the church history. When you had all the languages of the world in Jerusalem at that time, all having an awareness of God because they're Jewish faith, great way to kickstart the church, right? The Roman church wasn't started by an apostle, it was believed to have started from this. It's interesting though, at the turn of the first century, when the Pentecostal movement began, when the Azusa Street Revival and that came about, do you know what they were praying for? History tells us they were praying for missionary tongues. When they were seeking God on their knees, it was young kids wanting to do missions, wanting to go overseas and tell the world about Jesus and save the world. And that is figured in their hearts, well, if Acts 2, they can speak all new languages, and we don't really want to sit three, four years of language school God, can we speak a language so we can just go there and speak it? History actually doesn't record that a lot of that happened. But this other wave of the Spirit did. And God still used those people to save lots of people. Because they, first and foremost, were given wind, fire and a voice. The end of chapter 2 tells a great story. After a group of disciples aligned with God's timetable, this is interesting, only you know, 500 people saw Jesus risen. We know that from 1 Corinthians. Paul tells us that, right? And yet, God, Jesus sets a new timetable. Hang around. I'm not starting an army anytime soon. Only 120 remain. And yet those ones remained. They chose to align with God's timetable. They came together in a oneness of cause. They came united in prayer, only God's agenda. And they called 
on the God of harvest. And the God who proclaimed the law, Jesus completed the law, right? And the Spirit fell. The disciples proclaiming God afresh. The first new harvest coming. The church at the end of day dot, 3,000 people. Imagine that follow-up program. John 4, Jesus told the disciples to look at the harvest because it was white and ready. At Pentecost, the day where harvesting was celebrated, they were empowered by the Spirit to begin truly reaping a white harvest of souls. I could keep going, but I'm going to leave it there. Time is getting away from us. I'm going to invite the band to come up because I believe we've got one more song. A couple of simple points I just want to ask us about. Perhaps you can write these down on that note sheet. What's the Lord challenging us about? At the moment, the journey laid out for the Christian church in the first century is a pretty simple one. Remain faithful, be a witness, and do it in the power of the Spirit. I wonder how much of that simplicity has kind of got lost in translation in our own faith expression. Are we allowing our lives to be interrupted by the Spirit? Are we open to being a witness? Are we remaining faithful? Sometimes, Have you noticed that God's agenda is a little bit different to our own? His timetable is a little bit different to our own? Are we submitted anyway? And how open are we to the leading of the Holy Spirit? Again, I'm not talking about do you speak in tongues or do you prophesy, do you have any... No. Do you know the wind, fire and voice that the Holy Spirit gives? For starters, that's how simple it is. The wind, the rushing wind that comes through us, that moves us, the fire that makes us bold, refines us, purifies us and the voice that we can utter when we didn't know how to do so in our own strength. I told you, we can look at Pentecost, can't we? Can we reenact some of that in our own life? And can we always please remain single in cause? You might not agree with me in times, and I might not agree with you. In fact, there's actually a question on that note sheet. Do you actually agree with Ken's summation of things? (laughs) It's okay to intellectually disagree with things. It's okay to not feel it all the time because we're human and that's the case. We don't always feel like we want a group hug, do we? I'm not a hugger anyway. But we can come together going, you know what? We all point to the cause. And when we do that, the Spirit can do great things. Let's leave it there. Let me pray for you. Lord God, we've come to you now. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for the cause that we have. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. For it gives us boldness. It gives us purity. It gives us momentum. It moves us. And it gives us a voice. So Lord, I pray that we would be open to the Spirit's advances. And be open to the fire, the wind and the voice of the Spirit. How that manifests itself, we're submitted to you, Jesus. But right now, we're simply after those three things. 
I pray that we would open our hearts afresh, that we would experience you afresh in this way, God. In fact, we say that you are welcome in this congregation. You are welcome, the rushing wind, the fire of the Spirit, the voice of the Spirit. We welcome it. Lord, as we begin this journey in Acts, I pray that you'll be with us and really help us to see our story in this, our journey in this. And Lord, I pray that you'll just really show us how we can be the witness we're called to be through this. We commit ourselves to you. We commit our week to you, Jesus. May we be faithful and may you give us those opportunities to speak. May we be martyrs for you in the week ahead. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.